Again, this is a surprise. Not quite a full episode of Dad Does Drugs, but one that I felt uh, I should make anyway. Um, I had one more interview that I hadn't used with a lovely chap called Brian Reed, who lost his daughter in 2016. She was called Lydia and died uh, of a heroin overdose. And I wanted to use the interview, but for a couple of reasons, I didn't use it earlier in the series. One was that I wasn't sure I'd recorded it very well. We happened to go uh, as you'll hear in the intro to um, a place that was a bit noisy um, so it's a little bit echoey but you can hear it reasonably well and on listening back I think it's still uh, audible enough to not be annoying um, the other thing as well was that I, th- I felt um, with my own children um, particularly Credence my son who listened through to all of my interviews through the series um, I thought it was a bit hard on him to listen to another interview with a bereaved parent it's just quite a lot to deal with isn't it for a young person and he's only 13 and um and i felt we'd probably covered enough of that subject matter together so um so this is just the interview uh, i'm not going to play it to credence and have him uh, listen to it afterwards because i just think it's a bit heavy going and i also think i don't think it's quite reflective of the entire picture of um of the drug world that i sort of wanted to talk to him about i don't want him to think it's all people dying um because it isn't um but um uh, Brian's got some interesting things to say. He's a lovely man and he works with The Loop, uh, as you'll hear in the interview now. He does talks for anyone's child. Um, he's really keen on drug reform and wants to um, make Lydia's legacy one of increasing drug awareness and hopefully uh, changing uh, the future for a lot of younger people so that they don't, um, you know, they don't. Uh, end up in a, in a tragic circumstance like Lydia did. Um, so thank you very much Brian for doing the interview with me and uh, I hope you enjoy it, um, those of you listening and uh, there might be some more bonus episodes like this one a bit later in the summer as I go to festivals and hopefully catch up with a couple of more um, good druggy talkers uh, that's druggy talkers at festivals, not druggy takers. There'll be plenty of those but I probably won't catch up with them at festivals Okay, enjoy, bye <laughs> Right, we're um, recording this in uh, the Sea City Museum and um, people are looking around, it's in Southampton, Uh, I think there's a Titanic exhibit, so if you can hear kind of maritime noises in the background, uh, we are in a cafe underneath an exhibit so that's why it's a bit echoey, and I'm with Brian Reid who has had a mention in passing in a previous episode of the podcast when I was with The Loop and Fiona Misham, founder of The Loop, um, was putting me right when I said that oh, you've got all these young volunteers but buzzing away uh, doing all the chemistry and she said oh well actually my volunteers range from 
young student types through to our oldest chemist who's 69 years old and that is you Brian Reed. Well I got a mention. Yes. Thank you Fiona. <laughs> so what's your chemistry background? How, how have you um, ended up doing yes. that? Uh, for many years um, I was an industrial chemist, um, a bit of research uh, in the lubricants industry and I thought that that background would qualify me for work with the loop and certainly I, I could handle um, the, that aspect of the work. It's <laughs> living at festivals that's the hard part because of the weather. Yeah, so um, which ones have you done with them? Uh, I started at um, the strangely named Truck Festival in Oxfordshire last year, then did Bestival and pretty well uh, moved straight on to Boardmasters in Cornwall. Wow, okay. And had you been to festivals before? Um, only the Green Man, where I was, uh, I was actually selling things once upon a time, right. ecological product. Okay. Um, but no, I was fairly unprepared for the festival experience. And was it 2017 festival you were at? Or was it 2018? Um, 18. Okay. Yes. So the weather was hot then, wasn't it? It was scorching hot. The week before, it had been torrential rain, and in fact, Camp Festival had been washed out and people oh, had been right. given the refund. Yeah. But when we got there, the ground was baked like concrete, the grass was grey in colour, and it was pretty scorching in the, in the, in the loop um, lab. Yeah. So I met the loop at um, at a community centre in Bristol, where it was it was hot and sweaty in there because yes. just a lot of people using a oh, lot of equipment. Absolutely, the, the demand is such that although we started out by doing a shift system, in fact um, there were twenty of us in the small porter cabin practically all the time. I, I'm guessing, as an industrial chemist, mm -hmm. you'd never come across working on um, illegal substances. No, no, before. that was uh, definitely a new experience for me. When you're there in the thick of it, do you have time for a sort of emotional response to it, or a, a sort of moral yes. feelings about it? I can't speak about the the morals of the thing. Um, Emotionally, it's very difficult because, as you know, my daughter died as a result of taking drugs in June 2016, and she absolutely loved festivals. So it is hard on me to be at a festival after hours when I'm taking part in the music events, for instance, um, because I think how much she would have enjoyed being there with me. And I found that quite difficult to deal with uh, on several occasions. Yeah, it's so recent as well, 2016, um, yes. and so did you find wanting to be involved in, in something was helpful to you afterwards? Yes, th this is um, her legacy. My desire to be involved in harm reduction stems from that, of course. Uh, I was like anybody else. I, I never thought about drugs on a day-to-day -day basis um, until it was brought home very forcefully that we're living in the midst of a drugs crisis uh, at present. Where they call it a war on drugs. It's a, a failed war on drugs. It, it doesn't work. You, you can't stop people taking drugs. What you can do is minimise the harms. And by harms, I mean everything from, say, going home after a festival with a headache to going home in an ambulance or, in the worst possible case, not going home at all. 
and in any industry there's a rule of thumb that there are 10 near misses for every fatality and this figure which is the government's own figure of 3,756 drug related deaths in 2017 is a total underestimate of what actually happens out there. There are many more people than that that are, are damaged by the use of drugs frequently because drug dealers do not know either the strength of the product they're selling or more importantly exactly what's in it. And I know of several instances where completely the wrong substance has been sold to people uh, and this is can obviously lead to serious harm. Did you find yourself coming to the, the decision to uh, start working in harm reduction? Uh, did, did you find that quite easy or quite soon or, uh, no, after Lydia's no, death? No, I did not. Um, for about a year afterwards, I was quite incapable of doing anything, really. Um, and then when we... When that period was over, I forced myself to become involved um, in various groups and joined Anyone's Child, which is a campaigning organisation to make things safer for, for all drug users. Yes, I've heard of Anyone's Child, but I've never, I've never sort of spoken to them. So they're an international group, aren't they? And yes. I, I see, I've often seen tweets where um, it's been mums. So are there many dads involved as well? Relatively few. Um, women tend to be more vocal um, on this sort of thing. Um, in this country, we really concentrate on the harms to individuals, um, but in some countries, such as Mexico, the harm to society is really the driving force where, where the, the drug wars are absolutely out of control Yeah, there's just all the associated violence, isn't there, for yes, the communities yes. and that undermines the police and, and, yes. and everything really Yeah. Yes, uh, because the drugs industry worldwide is absolutely washed with money um, in some countries it's simply a fact that anybody can be bought there's such corruption involved it's untrue yeah. um, my own studies show that if the worldwide drugs trade was a country that would rank in 20th position in the world it would have the same influence on the world economy as the whole output of the country of Sweden wow. it's just absolutely staggering the amount of money and it's of course practically all in cash it distorts local economies, it denies governments the revenue that they could get from a legalised trade, and there is nothing good about it at all. Some people say that if drugs were um, legalised, it would lead for free-for-all, but the unfortunate situation that we have at present is that's exactly what we have. It is a total free-for-all. Anybody can buy drugs, no questions asked. You only need to pick up the phone. The drugs arrive quite often by a child on a bicycle, quicker than a takeaway meal would. Nobody asks for ID. Nobody gives you any indication of dosage, side effects. For instance, I have a, a pharmaceutical leaflet here. It's for a simple asthma medication. There are six pages of effects, right. side effects, what to look for. If you buy drugs on the street at a festival, you get absolutely nothing like that. I'm saying no questions asked whatsoever. It is just totally out of control. The whole business is in the hand of criminals. They're definitely not 
working to your best um, with, with your best interests at heart they're there to maximize their own profits and that's it yeah um so we um we met was it November last year you were at a, a symposium uh, yes. in London about uh, street drugs and the big smoke it was called yes. and and you were with was it a bunch of other friends from the loop that you'd worked with previously yes. uh, although I was actually there as a representative of anyone's child um, to basically see my hero Professor Nutt yes who is always most informative and a very nice person to boot and you were, we, we were. I think we were trying to go for a coffee or a drink afterwards, but um, uh, uh, we couldn't find anywhere to. Uh, uh, well, get. we did, we did eventually. Right. <laughs> the place we were directed to was shut. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Um, and yes, I we, we had um, quite a good session with the Uruguay representative afterwards, who was explaining how difficult the decriminalisation process was in Uruguay because they had such opposition from people who said, oh, it will lead to a free-for-all and it's morally wrong, we can't do this, can't do that. But their experience there has been almost entirely positive. And nearer home, of course, in 2001, Portugal decriminalised possession for personal use. And again, the experience has been almost entirely positive. It's led to a huge reduction in crime, for instance. And on that topic, it's only last week that Cressida Dick of the Metropolitan Police um, stated her opinion that all knife crime was in some way related to the drug trade. Yes. Have you have you been surprised by your... Um, maybe it's been a change or, or just your, sort of an awareness that you've now got of... Uh, problems caused by the war on drugs and, and so are you sort of surprised to find yourself think talking about legalisation and um, legal regulation of, of illegal drugs? Yes, absolutely. My own journey to where I'm uh, presently took some three years from when I first realised that my daughter was taking drugs um, and I used to be as anti-drug as anybody else. Now I'm fairly neutral on the subject when it comes to grown-ups um, I simply cannot understand why some drugs such as tobacco and alcohol are legal and others are not my feeling is that if tobacco and alcohol were discovered now they would be illegal mm. um, they have such bad effects on society and individual health Help. yeah when we were at that symposium I think you were referenced in a, in a speech that um, uh, a police officer gave, Jason Q. Jason Q, yes. That's right. So he's with Thames Valley Police. Yes. And uh, he was a really emotive, kind of brilliant speaker, wasn't he? And, and he was talking about um, the fact that he, I think as a police officer, he still he can't sort of officially say that he um, disagrees with our drug law and drug policy uh, when he's on the record. But he is really passionate about trying to divert people out of a cycle of taking drugs, getting caught, going to prison, yes. coming out, taking more drugs, getting caught, and, and try and get them yes. into healthcare, isn't he? So Absolutely. It's called a diversion scheme, and I understand it's very successful. It's uh, early days for that, and certainly in the Thames Valley. Did you come into contact then with Jason through... Uh, 
you know, through anyone's child, through a kind of getting into sort of um, acting on their behalf, or, or did you have a relationship with him in some other? I way? already had a relationship with him. It started because um, I wanted to know what action was being taken to close down local drug dealers who appeared to act with impunity in our town. Um, so I had some meetings with the local police and eventually they put me onto Jason Q who came out to our house in a state of some trepidation because he thought I was going to give him a hard time and he said he was absolutely amazed to find that that wasn't my message at all my message was one of what can we do to make things better it's a message of hope if you like that diversion and decriminalisation would help people who absolutely have to have drugs at almost any cost and, and we can't get away from that and what can we do to help them rather than trying to lock them up giving them a criminal record which stops them getting jobs in the future Yeah. and he was very pleasantly surprised to see that that was my attitude but I have to say that that was not always my attitude yeah. like anybody else before all this happened uh, I didn't think about drugs it was simply over my horizon I had no yeah. idea that drugs were so widely available so easily available and so dangerous So Lydia died when she was 25 do you, do you know how she and it was a heroin overdose wasn't it well, do you know how she got involved it, in that drug particularly And a lot of her friends um, that she made after she left home uh, were clearly in a similar position and obviously we weren't very pleased about it but she was very very good at not revealing to us her parents just what she was getting into right. um, so the first time I had definite proof that she was taking drugs was when she phoned me at work she said I have to get up to a, a chemist a couple of miles away uh, and I asked her dear you know, what's wrong with you poorly and she said I've got a prescription for methadone which I have to go and take um, there and then in the right. chemist and I thought that was the worst day of my life at that time but I was so wrong because obviously um, things got worse but in the short term things did get better she went through the methadone program she was under the care of the local uh, drug advice people in Maidenhead and she moved house, she changed jobs she got engaged to be married and for at least eight months she was apparently on the straight and narrow and then for some absolutely unknown reason one day she took it into her head to uh, get some money and go out and buy some more heroin and this heroin turned out to be contaminated with fentanyl and it was actually mm. the fentanyl that killed her and she had absolutely no way of knowing that that was present right. so it wasn't a heroin overdose as such even though her tolerance was poor it was the addition of fentanyl which is some hundred times more powerful than, than heroin ever could be and as I say, she had no means of knowing that it was present. No. And um, uh, and so when you when you found out, and did you did you want to know more about um, 
the drugs and the people that had supplied her and that she did it with and, and things like that? Did you need to find out that sort of After she died, yes. But at the time, I was more interested in being involved in drug treatment, although I was actually denied access to the treatment programme because Lydia didn't specifically request it, and the default position is that families are excluded. My personal feelings are that this is wrong and that families are the key to supporting users and helping them get off the drugs. But that wasn't the case then and probably isn't the case now. I was actually turned away from the treatment centre. I was told, leave it to the professionals. And to give them their due, it clearly worked for a considerable length of time. Yeah. And we'll never know what suddenly made her want more. No. And that I, I, I've read um, that, you know, for to, to beat an addiction to that, uh, to an opiate, it tends to have a, a, a several relapses along that road. Yes, you're, you're undoubtedly right. Um, I prefer the term dependency these days. Um, addiction right. carries with it the stigma. And that's one of the problems with anyone's child because drug-related deaths, which I believe are underreported, that figure I gave earlier was the total death. There are something like 2,000 young people per year at present dying, not just from opiates, but from drugs in general. And it's as though the contents of, say, the Oasis Academy and another secondary school in Southampton, say 2,000 pupils altogether, were completely wiped out one year. But people would notice that. Mm. But because these 2,000 young people are spread throughout the country, the impact on society is much less. But there is such a stigma involved that the bereaved people feel shame that the children have died in this way and they feel they have no voice. Uh, this is where anyone's child could make a big impact. Yeah. Um, we don't have 10,000 people, which might be two parents and one brother or sister, joining anyone's child per annum. But the fact is that they are out there and they feel powerless currently. Um, in any other sphere of life, if 2,000 people per year were dying, there would be a national outcry about yeah. it. I've heard the, the, this, you know, Jason, the police officer that we referred to, he was talking about wanting to beat the stigma of yes. addiction. So I've heard that used a lot. And and I've also I've spoken to um, a mum, Wendy Teasdale, uh, whose daughter died at Boomtown Festival about five or six years ago, and that was a, a ketamine uh, overdose. Uh, and she talked about the fact that she sometimes feels from other parents a sort of sense of um, uh, like, like, like they're trying to make her feel shameful almost yes, for, uh, yes, so you're understand. not the first person to say that No, I can fully understand shall we say ordinary people's reaction to drugs because they don't think about them in the normal course of events it is quite a shock when it, it happens to someone they know 
and, and they become aware of the scale of the drugs problem. And you have just come with the reason we're chatting today in Southampton is because you um, you live up in the Thames Valley but you're on your way back from Devon where you were giving a talk and was it at a school? Was it to mainly young people? It was at a school, it was to sixth formers. Um, it was arranged by a fellow member of anyone's child who lost their son at almost the same time as we lost Lydia and the school have been very interested and very supportive in learning more about drugs. They've had a, a programme of drug education, um, particularly in the sixth form, and the school requested that somebody speaks to them about harm reduction, which is why I went down there. It, yes, it was a long way for a short talk, but um, yeah. every little helps, I think. So do you feel that uh, people need to know more earlier but maybe people also of your generation need to know more in order to sort of change some of those yes. stereotypes maybe in the stigma. Well, absolutely. Um, in the course of my work, I frequently give talks to older people who, frankly, knew nothing at all about drugs. I, I tend to tell the uh, audience this is about everything you wanted to know about drugs but were afraid to ask. And... They're shocked, quite frankly, at the ease with which one can get the most dangerous of drugs. You couldn't go somewhere and buy such a lethal product anywhere else except in the, the field of illegal drugs. For instance, uh, I keep coming back to the adulteration of heroin by fentanyl. Um, the amount of fentanyl that it would take to kill me, for instance, would be less than two milligrams. Now, you would cover the head of a, a large dressmaking pin with that quantity. It would be very hard to see, but that's the sort of right. dose that we're talking about. Therapeutically, uh, and I have taken fentanyl for severe pain, and the dose is in micrograms, but if there's a couple of milligrams in the dose of any drug that you take, it is undoubtedly going to kill you. Yeah, so there's the dangers of um, the fact that it's an illegal market and you might not know what you've got. Yes, this uh, is the big danger, absolutely. And um, you certainly might not know anything about it, no one's no, communicating no, you uh, won't. dosage um, and stuff. Because it's an undercover activity, young people are very unlikely to speak to an adult about it. Like the adult might not know the ins and outs of it, but they could find out. Yeah. Um, but I've often found that um, speaking to young people, they've never ever had a serious conversation about the drug use with anybody. Um, they, they talk to their peers, but they're as ignorant as anybody else. Uh, yeah. There are very few hard facts. I should say that there is an organisation called Frank, which you'll have come across, which Talk is to very Frank. good. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and you can find them online very easily, or at council offices, libraries, you can get the booklets. And there's a whole series of them on different drugs and the effects. And this is a valuable resource for young people. And what do, what's the reaction to, to you when you... Um 
you know, when so you've just given this talk, what, how how does the how does the room react? What's right. the face? What's, what's happening on the faces of people as you give your talk? Right, that's a very good question. I haven't had people throw things yet, but initially um, hostility. You can see the hackles rise. Really, we don't want to know about drugs. What's it got to do with drugs? Well, the fact is, it's got a lot to do with you because you have children, you have grandchildren in many cases. I tend to talk to old groups. And the fact that they don't know about these things doesn't mean it's not out there and it doesn't mean it's not happening because it is. Uh, and I keep coming back to this figure of 2,000 young people approximately. And I actually doubt the veracity of that figure because my own research has shown that coroners are very loath to put drug-related deaths down as being drug-related, despite the 2009 ruling that coroners must do this, they will tend to spare the feelings of the bereaved. Right. So accidental, overdose, misadventure, in one case I know of, personally it went down as heart attack, which is perfectly true, of course, but it was brought on by drug use. Um, so these figures that are I've mentioned repeatedly are an underestimate. There's no doubt about that. And um, I've read an article. You, know, you um, were interviewed by the Daily Mirror, yes, and and, and sort of talked um, about your journey uh, into harm reduction since Lydia's death. Um, so, and and that is a very balanced and positive article from a big tabloid newspaper. Um, but you know the, the media has a history of sensationalising and, 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 and you know communicating a lot of mistruth. So um, do you feel now a sort of uh, a passion or a duty or some sort of sense that I, you know I, even if it's unpleasant, as I'm sure it must be quite upsetting and what have you to do these interviews? Do you feel like you you kind of need to? Yes, I've used the phrase Lydia's legacy and. My work in harm reduction is what I take to be her legacy on earth. Yes, it's difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. Um, and it's so... I, I'm still struck... Yeah, I just... I can't imagine the the pain and um, the sadness, really, and it's so soon afterwards. So, I mean, I'm very grateful for what you're doing and I'm grateful for you, for you speaking to me. Thank you. Uh, I should say ahead of me, um, I've not read the Mirror article and I don't believe I ever could. Yeah. But of course, I know people have and they said, just like you did, it's a positive message, which is what I wanted to get across. Yeah. I think that things can be improved, um, in some cases relatively easily, by making the the drug problem, if you like, a medical problem, not a legal one. And I think this is the way to go. Yes, well, well the, the, um, the British way of, of treating heroin dependency used to be that, that you would see the doctor and get prescribed yes. medical-grade heroin, yes. and, and then, you know, the other interventions of counselling and, and helping you to, to quit that dependency would run alongside that, wouldn't it? Is it? Yes, it would be mandatory to attend classes. Yes, I, I see that as a very positive thing that we could revert to very easily. 
Um, I, I don't know how he ever got into this uh, mess of total prohibition. And when you look at the categories that drugs fall under, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. No. no. Well, thank you for your time, and I, I, um, I hope that you know by chatting to me, I don't, you know, I, f- I feel like I'm trying to do something for my own children to keep them safe. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that other people will listen to it and the word spreads and more people talk to their children and, and that sort of thing. So um, thank, you. Well, thank you very much for your time, Brian. I really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. Thank you.